In the world of sports, athletes spend countless time practicing basic skills, throwing, passing, serving, shooting, whatever. So why would a top player in any sport need to work on basics? Simple, because those basics are the foundation of a well-played game. And when it comes to riding motorcycles off-road, it's those basic skills that need to be mastered before you get into a rough situation. And knowing them isn't the same as mastering them, because when the going gets tough, you can't afford to think about the basics. They need to be programmed into your muscle memory. So no matter if you've signed up for a skills course this year, and you probably should, or whether you plan to work on it yourself, today on Adventure Rider Radio's exclusive Rider Skills segment, we have for you four basic skills to master before the going gets tough. And if you can master these skills, and you should, your riding is going to be a whole lot better. But before we get into the rider skills segment, we're going to talk with a traveler and author about planning his upcoming one-year trip, the difficulties of an aging motorcyclist heading off for an extended trip and then having to return to normal life, a new book called Motorcycle Messengers 2, that and a whole lot more. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Best Rest Products makes the number one tire pump in the business for motorcyclists. It's made in the USA and has a lifetime warranty. They got a bunch of other motorcycle gear they make as well, and they are the place to buy Googletech filters in North America. Their website, www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Hey, if you're into BMW motorcycles, Max BMW has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They've got all kinds of parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door. The website, Max bmw.com. Also sign up for their e-rider newsletter. It's free to sign up for. Again, the website maxbmw.com. Hi, I'm Sam Manning. I'm Phil. Ted Simon. Justin Vance. Pat Jace. Herbert Schwartz. Nathan Millwood. Linda Postley. Simon Payton. Jamie Coach-Strout. Sterling Noreen. Brad Johnson. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear is American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all motorcycles. You can turn a dry bag into motorcycle luggage using the strapping system, and it's all tested in extreme conditions to withstand the abuse of of what we do with adventure bikes. It's the stuff that I have on my bike as well. Drop by their website, www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. If you want your chain and sprockets to last longer than they are right now, check out the Moto Breeze Chain Oiler. It's got no moving parts to mess with. It's powered by wind pressure and adjusts for your speed automatically as you go. The website, www.motobreeze.com. There's two eyes in there. And one ounce of oil in this chain oiler is going to last for 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Again, www.motobreeze.com. Howdy. Jeremy. Jim, how you doing? You guys must have tons of snow right now. Yeah, it's been snowing here nonstop for uh, the past few days. Oh, nice. <laughs> you, sound, you sound like you're tired of it. Uh, well, I am tired. I've been working outside for the last week, so it's been bone-shatteringly cold here in Canmore, and uh, kind of looking forward to spring, to be honest. Jeremy Craker is a traveler, an author, and a publisher of motorcycle books through his company called Oscillator Press. 
His latest book is called Motorcycle Messengers 2, and Jeremy had already published Motorcycle Messengers a while back. Both books are a collection of stories from various authors, some well-known, some not so much. Jeremy lives in Canmore, Alberta, Canada, and he's planning on doing another big trip. Matter of fact, he's planning right now. This one includes taking a year off work to ride into South America. He's traveling with his girlfriend, each riding their own bike. And unlike his previous motorcycle adventures, this one is presenting some unique challenges in the planning stage. Jeremy, great to have you back on the show. Yeah, great to be here. First of all, I sort of want to get an idea of um, for the listener of your travels. Did, did you start out as a, as a dirt biker? Is, is that where your sort of motorcycle passion comes from? Yeah, I think, I can't remember how old I was, but I must have been around 13 years old or something like that. And I was living in a small town in Saskatchewan. And um, my dad just, on a whim, I think, bought me a motorcycle, a little dirt bike, a little uh, Suzuki DS80. And from then on, I was hooked. So just ripping around the prairies. Um, He didn't give me very much in the way of specific instruction. He just told me to get on the bike and showed me this is how you make it go faster and this is the brake and the clutch. You only need that when you're starting out. Uh, Don't worry about it after that. And then slam in and out of gear and away you go. And you survived. Yeah, it's uh, actually remarkable that I survived. <laughs> uh, but I did wear a helmet, so that was the one piece of safety gear that uh, everyone has insisted on. Apart from that, it was just uh, you know blue jeans, runners, t-shirt, and uh, Saskatchewan summer days. It's almost ironic, isn't it? Because you think about nowadays, if you're to start a, a young kid riding a motorcycle, <laughs> you do all the precautions, all the safety gear, all the instruction. Well, that's right. And I think that's probably because people like me, I don't have children, but uh, a lot of people who are my age do, uh, they probably learn from their own mistakes. And if I had kids, I would definitely bundle them up a lot better than uh, than I was when, when I had my first motorcycle. How did you get into traveling with a motorcycle? Well, that was kind of a funny story. I traveled, uh, well, I traveled when I was 21. Two, and I went to Europe, spent a year just backpacking around. And there I met a guy who put the bug in my head to ride to Argentina on a motorcycle. Um, didn't work out and we kind of lost touch with each other. But that thought always stuck in my head. And um, Years later, years and years later, like 10 years after that, um, I had a bad breakup uh, with a girlfriend that I, I really cared about. And I was feeling sorry for myself and heartbroken. And I decided that I was just going to quit everything and just take off. And I was going to buy a motorcycle and ride south. And um, so I would always say that I'm a traveler first and a motorcyclist second. But um, yeah, it was the breakup of a relationship that was the catalyst for my first journey. On that, on that first journey, and I th- that's the one that you, you wrote a book about this called Motorcycle Therapy. That's right. Yeah, I did. Yeah, it's it's a great book, and I think we talked about that before. But when when you're going into motorcycle travel, sort of you know new, and if you remember back to that, what was that like? That transition of, of packing up the bike. What was it? Anything, or did you just throw your stuff on without thinking? Because there's so much thought put into it nowadays when people talk about taking a trip. You know, there's th- thoughts about what what bags you're going to use and what gear you're going to take, and and we all get into nitpicking these tiny little things. What was it yeah. like for you back then? Well, it's, there's kind of a funny parallel between how I learned how to ride on my little DS80 in Saskatchewan and how I learned how to travel on a motorcycle. Um, again, I was very ill-prepared. 
I just uh, threw a bunch of stuff together. I didn't have luggage. Um, I did have some soft bags, uh, soft saddle bags that I threw on. Uh, apart from that, it was just um, a backpack that I strapped to the back of my bike and uh, I set off. And there again, I didn't have the proper uh, motorcycle riding gear like I do now. So if you see photos of me preparing for motorcycle therapy, um, the trip to Panama from Canada, uh, you'll see me standing in just runners and um, blue jeans and like a windbreaker. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if I had if I had put the bike down at any point on that trip, um, it would have been a, a bad, bad situation. So yeah. now I ride with all the gear. I've learned a few lessons. Yeah. And you were riding with your buddy there. I think you were both commiserating, weren't you? <laughs> you both these had breakups or something, and, and that's what you were doing. Yeah, that's right. So um, I traveled with a man out of uh, Manitoba that I met on my first trip uh, through Europe when I was 21. Uh, he wasn't the one who put the seed in my mind to travel to Argentina. But anyway, years later, uh, we both uh, got our hearts broken, I guess. Um, and so I just called him up kind of on a whim, I was looking for a travel partner and he said, yeah, let's do it. So he had less than, uh, less than three months to prepare for this journey. He had to work, he had to buy a motorcycle, he had to do all of that. So there was not a whole lot of research going into hard bags versus soft bags or anything like that. It was just get a motorcycle, stuff everything into a backpack and take off. You've uh, you've traveled through, I think, 30 countries um, since you've started traveling. Another trip that you did ended up in another book through uh, Dust and Darkness. Mm -hmm. What was that trip about? That trip, I did a little more planning on that one. Uh, I shipped my motorcycle from Canada to Germany, and then from there, my goal was to make it to Iran. Um, there, At the time, there was a lot of talk about uh, the U.S. government wanting to go in and bomb Iran because of their nuclear... Um, aspirations and things like that and I wanted to see the country before it was destroyed essentially um, fortunately uh, cooler heads prevailed or or something happened to divert uh, catastrophe and there was never um, an invasion thank goodness and it's just a beautiful country Iran so I rode from Germany all the way through the Middle East and then ended up um, visiting Iran for six weeks and then carrying on through Egypt and uh, Libya and Tunisia and then back to Europe and then back home. You, you said that you sort of consider yourself or you do consider yourself a traveler first and a motorcyclist after that. D does the bike add anything to your trip? Do you, do you find, I mean, other than the thrill of riding a motorcycle, which we all get, anybody who rides a motorcycle gets that. Does it add any, any sort of other element? Does it change the adventure? Because you're saying you're a traveler first. Does it change that, that trip from what it would be like if you weren't using a motorcycle to what it, what it is like when you're using the bike is there any difference there and and I'm I'm talking aside from the obvious motorcycle thing yeah um when you're traveling with a motorcycle you're really inserting yourself a little better into the culture that you're moving through I think uh you're stopping where people stop to get fuel you're stopping at little restaurants and sometimes you have unscheduled stops because of a breakdown or um, because of a route finding error, things like that. So when you're traveling through more conventional means, through buses and trains and things like that, typically you arrive on time at your destination and uh, the taxi driver knows where to take you and things like that. So there's a little bit more of the unknown when you're traveling with a motorcycle and that adds um, a nice element to the, the whole adventure, I think. And also, you know, I think Ted Simon said it, 
first or loudest, I'm not sure, uh, when he said, when you're traveling on a motorcycle, you're seen as a human form traveling through a landscape. Um, you're, you're pretty vulnerable. And um, vulnerability often um, leads to wonderful cultural experiences. Do you think part of it is making you stand out? Because if you're riding the bus, I, I know you're going to stand out because you're a foreigner, depending on what country you're in. I would have always thought that that bus journey would put you shoulder to shoulder with people where you make a, a, a tighter connection. But is there something about the bike that makes you stand out that really that, that makes that, that different experience? That's a good question. Uh, I think there's, you know, there's pros and cons to both types of travel. And that's why I say I'm a, a traveler first, because, yeah, standing shoulder to shoulder, like you're saying in a bus, uh, you do meet people that way as well. Um, I think when you're traveling on a motorcycle, it just gets down again to that vulnerability. And you're really at the mercy of um, the people around you. And to some people, that sounds like a frightening experience, but it's almost always a positive thing. Uh, people will take you in and guide you and uh, kind of look out for you and it's that element uh, and the complete freedom too I did get a little bit tired of like trying to figure out bus schedules and train you know stations and is this my stop and that kind of stuff so when you're on a motorcycle you do have a little bit more flexibility um, and, and a little bit more independence so when travel comes up now when you're talking with one of your friends and you're talking about going somewhere is it always bike related or, or is it sort of like a destination first and then you say oh well we'll use a bike for that um, I'm still keen to travel and I've done most of my traveling since, uh, so on the trip motorcycle therapy, I, I went with a friend and, uh, it was a very challenging experience and we had some interpersonal things to work out. And, um, since then I've done most of my traveling by myself. So, um, often it has been just flying to a location and, uh, traveling with whatever public transportation was available. Um, now I'm planning a trip to Argentina with my girlfriend and it's a combination of travel experience and the thrill of riding a motorcycle. So two motorcycles, she's got her own and, um, yeah, the destination is important. Um, and sometimes it's just not practical to arrive there with a motorcycle unless you're taking 10 months or a year to get there. Um, so sometimes flying in is just the easiest, the most practical way. This new trip that you're planning, tell me a little bit about the trip. So we're planning on riding all the way down through South America, all the way down to Argentina, and hopefully Tierra del Fuego, the typical traveler's destination with motorcycles, right? Um, we're going to take about a year to do it. That's the plan so far. And we're just debating now how to get there. So um, as everyone knows, I listened to your podcast on uh, the Darien Gap. Uh, it's pretty common knowledge that you cannot ride all the way from, you know, Alaska or North America to South America. So there's that pesky Darien Gap that you have to get over or through or around somehow. Um, we're just trying to decide now if we want to ride all the way from Canada and then make a short hop with a, maybe the stall rod or maybe a, um, an air, you know, solution. Or if we just fly our bikes right from Canada to Colombia and start from there. Mm, I see. So that, I guess the thought process is, you know, if you have a year, then you'll have more time in, in sort of, I guess, different culture. That's right. And my uh, girlfriend, her name is Elle. She's keen to travel all the way down there. Uh, she has already been to Panama twice with her motorcycle. So she's been there more than I have on her bike. Um, but she's still keen to move through the landscape and visit old friends and uh, gain that kind of experience along the way. 
and I'm kind of looking more at the uh, the time schedule that we have. She has unlimited time. I have about a year um, due to work constraints and obligations. So um, it's just kind of a, a checks and balances uh, scenario that we're working through right now. What, what's the trip about? Like, do you have a do you have a theme or anything like that when you're doing a trip? Do you say, "Well, I want to go here because of this"? No, not not this time. I have in the past. So again, when I went uh, to Panama the first time with my motorcycle, that was because of a relationship that failed, and it was kind of a, a journey of discovery and healing. And then the second trip through the Middle East, that was to uh, explore Iran. Um, also, for religious reasons, I was raised in a very fundamental religious home, and I wanted to look at religion from a different vantage point. So I did have a couple of themes going on those trips. Sometimes travel is just for the experience of movement and breaking out of your um, mundane, breaking out of your routine, and uh, just feeling alive again. So I kind of think that's what this trip is about, is just, um, I've kind of I'm not going to say a rut, but I do kind of feel like I've got into a routine that's very comfortable and very predictable, and I'd like to shake things up just a little bit. What's some of the challenges that you're finding for getting ready for this year-long adventure? So, yeah, the challenges are, there's a ton of them. Um, So I used to do all my traveling the same way. I would just quit my job. I would save up as much money as I could, quit my job, and then just travel until the money ran out and come home and be broke. But that was okay because I was young and I could always find a job. And, um, you know, if you're young and healthy in, in um, at least Western Canada, you can find a job. It may not be a great job, but you can get by. And that's how I always, you know, financed my trips. Now I'm in my mid-40s um, and I actually just bought a condo. <laughs> um, we'll see how wise that was. I did that about a year ago. Uh, so I'm kind of tired of running away and coming back broke. So that's the first challenge is just, can I do this? And do I still want to do these things at, at this stage in my life? And the answer is yes, I do, but I want to come back with a bit of a cushion. So some of the challenges, just figuring out, um, do I have enough money saved up and how do I pay the mortgage while I'm away? Things that are pretty mundane, but necessary to think about. And then, of course, finding a travel partner. Fortunately, I have uh, you know, a wonderful girlfriend, and she is keen to do this trip, and she's experienced with motorcycles, and we travel well together. Um, and then the nitty-gritty, the logistics of shipping versus riding, um, things like that. You know, it's interesting that you mention age because, you know, we hear a lot on this show of people who sell everything and, and go off and, and do their adventure and they sort of don't worry about coming back with nothing. But I know that, as you know, I'm, I'm in my, well, I can say my mid-50s. I may as well just say it. I'm 53. <laughs> I hate to even hear the number. But I think as you get older, you, you definitely, that thing of, like you say, when you're younger, it's easier to get a job. I mean, at, at, as we get older, it's more difficult to get ourselves, I guess, reestablished is what it is. And the whole money thing. I think for a lot of people, that's a really big concern. And the way you're doing it, I think, is probably probably comes up with a, with a lot of people who consider doing some sort of long trip. It's a huge, um, I, I think what I'm trying to say is when you come back with nothing and have to start again, there's no doubt age has a huge uh, amount of leverage on you. Oh, yeah, I agree totally. And, 
fortunately, right now I'm feeling pretty good. But eight months ago, I was having some uh, joint problems. So my hips were bugging me. <laughs> I'm probably eventually going to need to get them replaced, but hopefully that's not for another few years. And uh, I was having a shoulder problem. And I was really beginning to feel not my age. I was beginning to feel more advanced than my age. And that was a real concern. Uh, can I come back and will I be healthy enough to work? Uh, or can I do a job with my, you know, my skills as a writer and editor with that, you know, totally different left turn in my career? Um, so at the onset of the program, I did say that I am a writer and publisher, and that is true, but that's not my bread and butter. So I've always been uh, kind of a blue collar worker, uh, truck driver for the town of Canmore right now. So yeah, that that is in the back of my mind. Am, am I going to stay healthy enough to reestablish myself in the workforce um, or can I find another way to make a living? And that's another thing to consider when planning a big trip like this. Yeah, I think you you struck on two that really ring home with me, age and luck. And, and luck you can't, uh, I mean, not that I actually believe in luck, but happenstance, whatever you want to call it, those things you can't control. That's something that just happens and, and certainly a huge consideration. It doesn't matter if it's a motorcycle trip, it could be anything. Anything you're going to change in your life, anytime you're going to walk away from everything you've built up to, to that date, it, I think it just it becomes more perilous as, as we get into the, the higher numbers. Yeah, when you're doing adventure travel, um, well, I hate to say adventure travel because really, uh, I know we're talking on Adventure Rider Radio, but I feel like every time you travel, it's an adventure. So to me, it's almost like a redundant um, terminology. Um, but anytime you go on an adventure, whether it be climbing or uh, a kayaking trip or a camping trip or just a motorcycle trip around your province or whatever, you risk a lot of things. And sometimes it's you're risking your health uh, if it's a particularly dangerous climb that you're doing or you're risking financial loss, whether it be just riding off your motorcycle. You know, uh, there, there is an element of risk anytime you uh, kind of, you know, poke your head out of your hole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, you you said there that you're you're an author, you're a writer. Um, you also have started Oscillator Press. What made you start a publishing company? Well, I started Oscillator Press uh, because so my first book, Motorcycle Therapy, was originally published by Trafford Publishing, and they were um, based in Victoria, BC, Canada, and they helped people self-publish. Uh, they were a print-on-demand company, and back in the day, they did a great job. Um, then they changed ownership and things began to get a little bit more complicated and murky. Uh, I just didn't like where the company was going. So what I did was I took my book back from them and then I needed uh, a publishing company to start printing that book up. So rather than just self-publish, I started a publishing company. And now I am publishing other people's uh, short stories in anthologies, Motorcycle Messengers 1 and now Motorcycle Messengers 2. Right, which that's the that's what well, I wanted to talk to you about. So, so with Oscillator Press, though, you're publishing any any books about adventure? Is Adventure Motorcycle? Oscillator Press right now is a, it, right now it's just Adventure Motorcycle Travel. Uh, there's a possibility that it could branch out into transportation and things like that, but really, right now I'm keeping it small intentionally. It's you know, like adventure motorcycle travel, uh, publishing is also risky. So this trip, uh, that I'm planning to Argentina, I just, you know, I'm saving money, uh, I'm getting ready for it. And then this new book comes out. And so Oscillator Press had to put out a lot of money 
to print Motorcycle Messengers 2. So now I've got thousands of copies of this book, um, and, I, and I'm going on a trip, so I won't even be around to sell them and get that money back. So there's some financial risk when it comes to publishing as well as motorcycle travel. Well, your, your life is sounding more complicated the more you talk. And the idea of taking a year off with a publishing company and, and like you say, a new book, wow, that, that's a lot. But what, what is, let's just talk about Motorcycle Messengers 1 first, the concept of it. Yeah, so Motorcycle Messengers 1, uh, I've got a copy of it sitting right here. It is, got some pretty cool writers in here like Lois Price and Carla King and uh, Neil Peart. Uh, if you're a fan of Rush, uh, the drummer from Rush has a story in here. And then, of course, there's some um, some new people that you haven't heard about. Ted Simon has got a story in here. It's just what I wanted to do was just bring all these writers together and help readers find them. So here you have a book where you can just pick it up and maybe you've never heard of Lois Price because you live in Canada and you're just new to the genre or whatever. Well, you read her story and you go, I like the way she writes. Well, good news. She has written some books, and you can find them now. Um, same thing with uh, Sam Manicom. He's, uh, he's got a story in here, and he's got some books, but maybe you haven't heard of them. And Motorcycle Messengers is kind of a gateway to find these, these writers that you like. And then maybe there's also, on the flip side, some writers that you maybe don't particularly care for. So I won't mention any names. Maybe it's my story. You read one of mine, and you're like, no, nah, I don't like his style. Um, Hey, you don't have to waste all of your money on one of their books, but I have done a pretty good job, I think, of, of uh, curating this and bringing together some very good writers. So uh, hopefully most of the stories in here will resonate with you on some level and uh, you can find um, more from these talented writers. So kind of like a taster pack. That's right. I kind of think of it as a sample pack for motorcycle travel writers. Um, and some of these stories are excerpts from some previously published books, but all of the stories stand on their own. So you're not going to get just parachuted into a scenario in one of these stories and then just dropped off wanting more. Uh, there is some resolution in each story. So um, yeah, that was the idea behind the book. And I think it's worked out quite well. So then Motorcycle Messengers 2, what, what brought on that one? Well, like every motorcycle trip that I do, I learn lessons about packing and about um, efficiency and things like this and I apply them to the next trip so same goes with publishing every book that I put out I learned something new and I made a few mistakes on motorcycle messengers the first book um, and I decided to take those lessons that I learned the hard way and put out a volume two and I got some uh, again some very talented writers that I'm proud of um, Chris Scott he writes the adventure motorcycling handbook he's in here of course, Sam Manicum again, uh, Billy Ward, who uh, works very closely with Charlie Borman. He's got a story in here. And then Charlie Borman himself uh, wrote the foreword. You know, oh, and I'd be, re I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, Patty Tyson. He's got a story in both Motorcycle Messengers 1 and 2. And he is the uh, publisher of Overland Magazine, which is a great publication out of the UK. And, and from a, a reader's perspective, one of the other things other than a taster pack is it gives you these little bite-sized stories to read. So, you know, if you're the type of reader that's not going to sit down for an hour, this is what I really liked about it. I can pick it up. I, I can spend, you know, 10, 15 minutes reading a story and it's sort of like a little mini adventure. 
Yeah, I get that a lot too. When I'm at the motorcycle shows, uh, selling these books in Canada, mostly, um, I have people come by the booth and they pick up the book and they say, it looks great, but oh, I'm not a big reader. I'm like, perfect. This book is for you then. You can, you know, put it in your living room, put it on your coffee table and you'll get through a story, like you say, in 10 or 15 minutes, or maybe put it in your, you know, your day bag or whatever. If you're waiting in line, a doctor's office or something, you've got time to, to read a story about a motorcycle travel. So let's, for an example, take your story in here, um, mm-hmm. Fearsome Reputation. What's that story about? So Fearsome Reputation, I took a trip to Columbia. It was just a 10-day trip. It was a guided trip with Motolumbia. I flew down there and had a wonderful time traveling through the hills, being guided around and saw Columbia from a different vantage point than what you typically think of when you initially think of Columbia. We think of narcos. We think of the reputation that Columbia had in the 80s and the 70s. And, and it was a very violent, hostile place. But that has all changed. And Columbia is a wonderful place to visit now. And it's kind of it's kind of a hidden gem because it still does have that fearsome reputation and people avoid it uh, because of the conflict that was going on in the eighties and um, the, the civil wars ended there and it's a very peaceful place to visit and it's beautiful too. So that's what that story is about. And I, I do actually have another story in this book by um, a young writer named Catherine and she writes about being in Columbia when it was really, really bad. And she's delivering her little chocolate truffles to some friends around um, the city. And she has to, do, you know, dodge gunfire and explosions and things like that. So the danger back in the day was real. And that's why I wanted to include both of those stories in this book. The, um, the, the You mentioned that Charlie Borman wrote the foreword for this. I thought it was uh, notable what he was saying in here. Really what I got from it anyway was talking about uh, the fact that you know, there's people out there doing these incredible adventures, these real serious adventures. But as you just said as well, it doesn't have to be that to be an adventure. I mean, we can, it doesn't have to be a long one, it doesn't have to be a year, it doesn't have to be a month. It can be a day. I mean, and I know the word adventure is sort of overused, but I mean, I like that point that, that Borman was making that, um, you know, go out there and have an adventure of your kind. Yeah, that's exactly right. And in the first Motorcycle Messengers, there's a story in here about, um, a young lady, she's traveling on her very first motorcycle trip, and it's not very far. It's just a couple days down the road from her hometown, California. But to her, it is high adventure, and uh, her excitement comes through very clearly in the story. And that is it. Like, adventure is what you make of it. And it doesn't have to be, like, for instance, I'll be going away on 10, you know, in a few months, I'll be leaving for a year to travel in South America. And Spencer James Conway, you may have talked to him, I'm not sure. He has circumnavigated Africa and South America, and now he's on another adventure. Uh, It doesn't have to be that grand. It can just be, um, I live in Alberta here, it can be a trip into the mountains in British Columbia or, you know, whatever. We're just trying to get people to um, experience life a little bit more. And doing it on the back of a motorcycle, I think, is a great place to start. And, uh, yeah, Charlie hits it on the head in the forward when he just says, yeah, go out, have an adventure and, and kind of do it your way. Well, it's a, a great collection of, of really nice stories. And like I said, it's, um, they're, they're quick reads as you go through them. So well worth it. Where can people find the book? 
That's a bit of a challenge right now because it's technically not out yet. So in Canada, you can find it at your local bookstore. I always tell people, ask for books at your local bookstore. That's your first stop. And if you can't get it there for whatever reason, then broaden your search. Uh, Amazon will have it. Uh, currently, I see that it's not listed. But uh, if you keep poking around on the internet, you'll find it. But ask for it at your local bookstore first. Yes, that's one thing we want to do is keep the local bookstores. I don't want to go down a rabbit hole here, but I'm just stunned how the local bookstores have disappeared. And we're down to one here for ourselves. It's a tiny yeah. little store. There's hardly anything there. And it's because of buying everything online. Yeah, and that's why I'm a huge fan of local bookstores. So we've got a great one here in Canmore called Cafe Books. Um, they have it. In fact, they might be the first store in the entire world to carry motorcycle messengers too. <laughs> um, but it is available in Canada and the official launch date is um, coming up in March. So uh, it'll, it'll be available more widely then. Yeah, and the one thing I was going to say with the, the small bookstore is that you can go in, you can walk around, you can pick up a book and flip through them. You just get ideas. I do anyway. And, and, and so does Elizabeth. We spend a lot of time walking through bookstores when we come across them. Um, and, you, and you get ideas, you get inspired. You don't get that online when you're just looking at covers. Not the same way. No, absolutely not. And they always say, you know, readers who like this title also liked or frequently purchased together or stuff like that. And that's helpful. Like, it's, it's great that they're suggesting it. But yeah, there's nothing like hanging out in a bookstore. And um Myself and my girlfriend, Elle, we will often spend like the better part of an afternoon in cafe books. We'll just go in there, order a coffee and sit down and browse books. And it's a great way to pass an afternoon. And um, so, yeah, I'm a huge fan of local independent bookstores. Uh, chapters will have them, too. Yeah, that's um, the Canadian version of, I guess, Barnes and Noble or whatever. Um, and, you know, there's a place for, for that kind of um, store as well. But support your local independence. That's what I say. Now, what about buying it direct from you? Can they do that? <laughs> uh, yes. I laugh because my website is up. It's fully functional and you can order all of the books except for Motorcycle Messengers 2 currently. Um, to do that, you would have to send me a little note uh, on my website. You can do that. Uh, I'm going to try to make it easier for people to get the book, but right now it's just so freshly printed that I'm uh, scrambling to catch up. How about an ebook? Is it available for ebook readers? Yeah, the ebook is coming. It should be out by the end of February, and it will be available wherever you can buy ebooks. So there's always that option. Well, um, in uh, in the time coming up, look for Motorcycle Messengers Two: Tales from the Road by Riders Who Ride. Jeremy, great to talk to you. Good luck on your trip, and, and I really hope we can connect either on your trip or after your trip, and and find out what that's all about. Yeah, I'd love to. It's always a pleasure speaking with you at Adventure Rider Radio and I uh, appreciate your podcast and all that you're doing for the community. Great stuff. I've been speaking with Jeremy Craker and you can find out about Oscillator Press and the books that he sells at www.oscillatorpress.com. Of course, that link will be in our show notes. And as Jeremy said, those books are available through your bookstore or where you buy eBooks. going to take a two-minute break and be right back. Stick around, though, because after this, we've got Rider Skills with Clinton Smout coming up.
Well, the uh, the Red Rock Garage is certainly gaining a reputation as the motorcycle stop. It's in Beaverdale on Highway 33 in British Columbia. That's Beaverdale, Highway 33. They've got a, a fuel station there, an EV charging station. They've got a B&B and camping area. It's um, it's in, centered in sort of an amazing area for motorcycling. If you're into roads or if you're into trails, it's all there. Is it a destination when you're thinking of a place to go? Well, even if you're in your car, you might want to stop by and check it out. It's the Red Rock Garage in the heart of Beaverdale, Highway 33, British Columbia. And the website, www redrockgarage.ca. Of course, anytime you're dealing with them, make sure you tell them that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Again, the website, redrockgarage.ca. You know, we've got a lot of emails and messages from people over the last several months, really over the last year, I guess, uh, or more, where they're telling us they've bought the IMS foot pegs that I'm running on my bike and the great thing is, the thing that makes me feel good is they all love it as much as I do. We're hearing nothing but great things from everyone who's riding with these pegs. So it makes me feel good. I'm confident in it. I know they're great pegs because of my experience with them. You need to have a look. They've got a full line of adventure pegs there for us for all bikes. The website, www.imsproducts.com. And anytime you're dealing with them, make sure you throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Um, www.imsproducts.com. Even if you've been riding for a while, there's some basic skills that you should be practicing because that's what all your more advanced skills are built upon. Rider Skills is an exclusive program we developed here at Adventure Rider Radio designed to give you tools that can improve your riding skills both on and off-road. Now, of course, this segment is not meant to be a substitute for professional training. These are ideas and concepts that should you choose to try, you are doing so at your own risk. Now for today, we've got Clinton Smout from Smart Adventures in Ontario, Canada. Clinton, great to get you back on the show. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here. And and you're um, you're still in snow though, I know that. Yes, I just got off a snowmobile to come back to the office to talk to you. Do you love snowmobiling? Is that a thing for you? Well, I'd rather be on a dirt bike or an adventure bike, but in my part of Canada, that's not possible for four or five months of the year, unless I go where you live. <laughs> so it's a way to keep staff employed and it keeps our teaching skills tuned up for the five or six of us that do it. And it keeps a bit of revenue coming in. So I don't hate snowmobiles, but I'd much prefer bikes. Mm, that almost started to sound like a politician's answer that, that you, were, you were giving yes. me there. You were avoiding <laughs> saying something about okay. snowmobiles. You don't want to diss them. I mean, I snowmobiled as a kid. It's, it's great fun. I mean, I, I loved it. But yeah, I, I like uh, I like warm weather. I, I don't know. I guess I'm a bit of a... I, I like cold weather too. I shouldn't say that. No, that's not even true. I love the cold weather. But... um. I think if I had to choose a, a season, I think I'd probably go for, I think I'd probably go for fall actually. Yeah. Uh, fall's my favorite riding time, but I do enjoy a crisp snowy day when the sun's out. If you've got good gear and heated grips, it can be a lot of fun. Mm, yeah, that's true. That's true. Hey, what's this about you? You're going to ride this new Yamaha Nikon GT. Yeah, that it was at the bike shows and when I was in the Yamaha booth talking about dirt bikes with people, 
um, there was a crowd around it. And I myself looked at it and thought, why? Two wheels on the front, four shock absorbers. I get it that it would be better for braking because there's two contact patches. But I didn't really understand the why until I talked to a Japanese engineer. And that was, I think, at the Calgary show. Then we traveled to all the other shows, and it was the same thing, crowds of people around it. It's very unique engineering. So I said, you know, we should be demoing that. You should have somebody demonstrate it at the Toronto show because we have a huge indoor demonstration area that the Ontario Provincial Police do some really neat stuff. Mm -hmm. There'll be a stunt, stunt rider. And I usually do a how-to street riding survival tips. So they said, well, who could we get to ride that? And I couldn't think of anyone except for myself. So I'll... <laughs> I'll Hang there. on a second. You couldn't think of anyone except for yourself? No, that's that... the only name that came up. Oh, that's bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> so, because uh, it's kind of an honor. I think two head office employees wrote it in Japan, but nobody else in Canada has written one. Unless um, I'm told that two of them sold at the Vancouver Motorcycle Show. And it's a production bike. It's not one of these pre-production ones. So there might well be someone in Victoria riding one as we speak. Mm. But I'll be first Ontario rider for sure to have ridden it. Well, I didn't know they sold motorcycles at the show. Well, the dealers are there representing the manufacturer in the manufacturer's booth, there's always five or six different dealers. Oh. And uh, I was told two of them sold. They're $21,000. So it's not an entry-level bike by any means. But apparently it's, you know, it's like an MT-09 or a Tracer GT, which is a three-cylinder 900cc four-stroke which I have the FZ09 and I have a Tracer GT of my own that's a demo bike that I do these seminars with at motorcycle shows. So I know the motorcycle extremely well. I've just never ridden it with two front wheels. Mm. So it'll be a unique experience. I don't, I'll probably won't even be able to get it in second gear. It'd be nothing like a mountainous road. Apparently that's where it really shines. It will allow a really solid feel through two contact patches when leaning over. Yeah, that seems to be the sales pitch on the on the website, is that they're saying that, um, uh, but they don't actually say that much about it, but you can tell they're leaning towards the, the its control over different terrain, and I think they say that. Yes. Um, I proposed that they lend me one for a Yukon trip that I have planned in August, but there was no reply. <laughs> Nobody... <laughs> That office replied. As you mentioned, it's got three wheels. They call it a, a leaning multi-wheeler. Yes. Yeah, they didn't want the nomenclature of a three-wheeler because the engineering is very unique because you can lean it. Uh, for instance, you've got to put the side stand down. You can't, well, you could get off and walk away, but you're going to hear a loud crash. <laughs> it will fall right over. Uh, that's. I wondered that because I saw they have a side stand, they have a center stand available as well. And I was wondering, does it actually need it? When it's sitting yes. there with the two, the two front wheels are kind of close together. I don't know. I looked at this. I looked at the display there when I saw you down at the show, and I sort of looked at it and thought the same question: Why? What, what's the point of this? I mean, you've got 
two 15-inch tires in the front, one 17 on the rear, and now you've just got another tire to go flat, and I don't know, is, do you really need it, I guess? Exactly. Um, there are two, as you say, 15-inch front tires, but I've learned not to prejudge. I'm going to try it myself because a lot of people will drink the manufacturer's Kool-Aid and, you know, the Lada car is the best one in the world if you drink in their Kool-Aid. <laughs> but um, I want to try it myself. There was a time when customers called me and said, you know, I want to learn how to ride in the forest on my 1200 BMW. And I thought they're insane. Mm. I wanted to ask them, do you drive a Kenworth tractor trailer to work? What are you doing in the forest with that big tank? And I prejudged it until I rode it myself and started riding them a lot in the forest. And it's a very capable bike. So maybe the Niken GT is the same thing. It would be incredibly good at braking and cornering and I'll want to buy one. Mm, that's true. That's that's a very good point. Is, is this Toronto show, are you going to be riding it for the first time in front of a bunch of people? Well, I asked, could I possibly get it there? Because I don't want to crash because there's going to be some Yamaha executives and executives from other brands, and you don't want to be labeled as that guy. <laughs> Remember that guy? Did like if you bent over and smashed somebody in the head with your helmet, that sort of thing. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> Luckily, all of those executives have retired, so Honda hires me again as an instructor. But, uh, for those listening who don't know that story, you're going to have to go back to our last Riders, a Rider Skills episode with Clinton where he, he told us this story. It, it's, well, it's well worth looking on the website and listening. Very embarrassing. Well, you know, we, we were talking about the season coming up because it's wintertime here for, for us in North America anyway, and talking about um, people getting ready to take their, their courses and learn to become better riders. And you and I got talking about, you know, what can they do before they arrive? In other words, what, what could you do to sort of get us back to basics, some basic skills that you can learn before you actually go to take your course, for instance? I mean, and, and it, you don't have to be signed up for a course. You could just be doing it for yourself as well. But we're talking basic skills. Here. And if you do these basics, if you learn the basics, it, it would make a huge difference, wouldn't it, for, for coming in for a, if they signed up for a course and they wanted to learn skills? Absolutely. Even bicycle skills, if you haven't ridden one in a long time, you've signed up for a two-day, excuse me, get your license on a motorcycle course, I would get on a bicycle if you can find a dry piece of pavement and practice up. Because mm. balance Balance is an inherent skill required for riding any kind of two-wheeler. And it's far more of a struggle for a novice motorcyclist to learn to ride slowly, which is obviously what we do before you get to go fast. Um, if you have bicycle skills or some slow speed riding, and there's a lot of basic things that instructors who are listening to this well, if they had to pick out four common coaching tips that they are always talking about with their clients, there are four repetitive ones in, in our teaching. I hear instructors talk about them all the time. Oh, this is good. So this is the type of thing that you, you kind of roll your eyes at, I guess. Or maybe not roll your eyes, but think, oh, man, if, if we could just get past this, we'd be on to some real learning. Absolutely. And the first half a day of a two-day novice course is developing a little bit of competence and confidence in these basic maneuvers. 
balancing, a lot of courses will have customers push each other in neutral. Uh, one is riding, one is pushing, all the gear on, and no engine. And this dead engine activity is just to get them used to putting the brakes on, balancing on the left foot, and being able to stop in a certain point. And that's pretty well lesson one. And then they learn how to start it up and then the clutch and first gear, et cetera. So that bicycle skills come in right there. Hmm. And you, you can tell a customer that doesn't have good balance. It's as if they have no spine. The bike is wobbling all over the place. Their head is down because it's extremely hard to balance looking down at the headlight or speedometer. You have to have your eyes up. So most, most instructors are parroting, eyes up, look at me, look at me, you know, as scary as that is. Okay, look just beside me, but eyes up. And that helps people go where they want to. Okay, well, let's, let's take these one at a time. Yeah. So what, what, what's the first one on the list? I would say the eyes up and balancing. Because we have two eyes, where we look, we end up going. And most people will talk about that in motorcycling. You go where you look, whether you're cornering at 80 kilometers an hour or in a parking lot going five kilometers an hour. So if you want to go straight, don't look down in front of the wheel. It'll wobble. Pick your head up, eyes level on the horizon, and pick a point that you are looking at that you want to get to. And then you're probably being pushed by someone but that's where you aim for. And that's up near a pylon, for instance, or some courses will use the white parking spaces of a parking lot. But you've got to use your lower peripheral vision. Don't turn your head tilting down. You can see it with the lower peripheral vision, your stopping point. And just work towards keeping the eyes up. And that's a paramount in really experienced riders struggle that when they come to something a bit more advanced, like adventure bike training, eyes down, eyes not turning around the corner before you start moving the bars is pretty well everyone struggles with. Yeah, and we've talked about this on the show before. I know we, we've talked about even when we're talking about certain skills, as like when we're turning around and things like that. But it, it is that um, it's a little difficult if you don't train yourself, if you don't really work to do it. Push yourself to look around the corner, look into the corner. I know from riding motorcycles, for me, it's helped me become a better driver because I've learned to use my my riding skills automatically when I drive, which which is looking deep into the corner, looking trying to look around the corner. It's just a split second or, or so difference, but it gives you the difference of um, you just don't feel as surprised when something comes up, not to mention the vehicle is going to go in the direction you're looking. Exactly. And you can judge the trajectory of your turn because you're looking through it. One thing I tried, but it wasn't successful, pesky lawyers, tie a rope to the left side rear of the motorcycle and then to the chin strap or the left side of the helmet and pull on that rope so their chin is touching their shoulder and people will turn left much better. Right. I can just imagine how that would go. I'm thinking about the, the chin on the shoulder thing. I know you, you teach your clients to do this. Can you everyone actually touch their chin to their shoulder? I mean, turn your head now and touch your chin to your shoulder. As you get older, that's a bit of a stretch, so to speak. It's easier with a helmet on because it's much larger. 
So you don't actually put your chin physically on your shoulder, but you're turning your head sideways as much as possible. Okay, that, that makes me feel better. Yeah. Okay, well, what's number two? I would say you've started up the bike, which most programs start with some kind of acronym. Some people use the word knife. K is kickstand, N is neutral, I is ignition, et cetera, et cetera, fuel, engine kill switch. Other programs may use something like fine, fuel, ignition, neutral, engine kill switch. And on older bikes, fine C is choke if it's cold. But pretty well everything a customer is going to buy now will be fuel injected. Anyway, there's some memory, some left side of the motorcycle, touch a few parts until you get over to the right side, and then it's ready to start. And you'll have less issues as a new rider if you memorize some kind of a skill set like that. In shutting down an engine, we teach and we signal it with cutting our own throat, hit your kill switch. We don't believe you should turn your motorcycle off with the ignition key. And I'll tell you why. In a panic mode, our brains will resort to what's familiar muscle memory. What is your habits? If you always shut off your motorcycle with the ignition key, that's what you're going to do in a panic situation. Maybe your throttle sticks. You go to your cousin's cottage. He's got an old dirt bike. You take it out. And it's screaming wide open. If you learn properly, which I believe is proper, you simply move your right thumb and hit the red button, which by law on a street legal motorcycle has to be by your right thumb. The key on a motorcycle is generally in the middle of the handlebar, but that's not a law. It could be anywhere. I have an old BMW. The key's on the headlight. Harley-Davidson's are often on the right side cover underneath your leg. So the kill switch to shut it off is a good muscle memory. But then you have to remember to reset it to start before you go to start it. (laughs) Or you're cranking it over and over. You know, I've seen that, that exact same thing where someone is used to doing the ignition and it's a panic when they get into a situation where the the bike starts to fall over or something and they're reaching to jam and stab at the ignition. Not to mention there's a bunch of keys on the same ring, which tend to jam up when you go to turn it off. And it just becomes, as soon as you take your hand off the handlebar, you've lost stability. It's, it's a, it's a mess. And uh, um, that makes perfect sense. So what you're, you sort of lost me at the start there when you were talking about knife, et cetera. What you're talking about is is getting comfortable with your controls, just the basic controls, know where they are and know where they are by muscle memory. So you don't have to look at it. Exactly. Now, a lot of older bikes will have a fuel petcock, which we call it a fuel switch in case you have giggling, nervous teenagers in your group. Uh, The word petcock comes from the British for you know, wine and whiskey barrels. So if it's a fuel-injected bike, probably doesn't have a fuel switch on, off, reserve, or prime. It just flows when ignition kicks in. So it depends on the bike, but most training bikes are going to be small, 125, 250s. They could well be carbureted. So you have to learn what starts your bike, And it's good to know what all the parts do. Because if you always just use your key in the electric start, you won't even know where reserve is if you have one on your bike. 
Okay. Yep. Makes sense. What's number three? I would say learning how to move off with the clutch. The clutch is a challenge for a lot of people who don't drive a standard car or have never driven a manual operated transmission. So we try to get people, um, I tell our staff, use analogies that the customer will understand. For instance, don't talk about hydraulic clutches, blah, blah, blah. Who cares? Consider that it's a dimmer switch. Everybody's got one in the dining room probably where you can turn the power of the electricity for the light up or down. A clutch is not to be used as a light switch on or off. There's all kinds of positions in between on and off where we can ride holding the clutch in. And it's not going to, we've talked about this before. Mm -hmm. Some people feel or will yell, don't do that. You're going to fry your clutch. Nonsense. If you have your foot on the brake or you're stuck in the sand or mud and you're giving it a lot of throttle when the clutch is partially in, yes, you will fry it. But for slow speed riding with no brakes on or no traction challenge, riding the clutch will never, ever hurt it. If somebody's coming to you for, to take a course with their bike, they obviously know how to use the clutch to pull away. But that's what, what you're saying is that probably what most people do, they have that thing of get off the clutch as fast as you can. And we talked about this yes. before. And so what you're saying is get that mindset out of your head, think of it more like a dimmer switch and just learn to modulate that clutch. Work on that as a basic skill. Exactly, because even a 125, when the clutch is all the way out at idle, it's probably doing eight kilometers an hour. An R1200, or I haven't ridden the 1250 yet, but an R1200 GS is doing 12 kilometers an hour at idle with the clutch out. That's too fast for a tight turn in a parking lot mm -hmm. or in the woods. So we tell people, pull the reins of the horse in, if, I, if they've got cowboy boots on, I use horse analogies. Pull the reins back in. That's the clutch. Whoa. Slip it not to the bar. Just take some of the power away by riding the clutch. The throttle has very little to do with your speed. It's how much power you're transferring to the rear, rear wheel with clutch engagement. Okay. So what's number four? I would say making sure you can ride with your feet up on the pegs. It's a very bad habit to get into as a new rider, seeing a stop sign in front of you, the feet come down like outriggers on a canoe and you're coasting in below 10 kilometers an hour, but you're riding for quite a ways with feet dragging on the ground. You know, I've never understood this. You see this a lot. I, I even see it with videos that people put out, you know, for, you know, they're riding a dual sport bike and you, and you just wouldn't expect it. They take off and it's uh, maybe not so much drag their boots, but they have their boots out there. I don't even know what you would do with them because I, I think it's probably a, um, you know, um, sort of a safety thing, a mindset. You, you, you feel a little safer if your feet are close to the ground or something, but it, it doesn't really serve any purpose because if they actually hit anything on the ground, they're going to drive it back into the foot peg. Exactly. You could really hurt your ankle, lower leg, foot if there's a problem. But um, I've analyzed it and a lot of people don't have legs as long as mine. So if they're on a big, heavy motorcycle, their brain is telling them, you know what, in case we tip over, we should have our foot down. 
No, you shouldn't. It's going to break your ankle if it lands on it. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we bungee cord our customers' feet you to the do park. not. No, we're not allowed to do that anymore. <laughs> it's, Boy, a, it's a good idea, but you do it not. It would work, though. It would work. <laughs> it so, would. But we ask them to use a psychological bungee cord. And when stopping, right from the beginning, when they're a novice and we're pushing them, there's no engine on, we ask them, just as you're coming to a stop, lean the mass of your head and helmet a little bit to the left. Which foot are they going to put down? They're going to put their left foot down. Absolutely. A little bit of helmet lean will cause the body mass to shift to the left. The brain will say, wow, we're tipping over. Let's put our left foot down. And we don't let them and coach them positive reinforcement, keeping the right foot up. And we always threaten the bungee cord thing jokingly because people are nervous sometimes. So if you can yuck it up a little bit with them, not at their expense, but just generally relaxed, slow-paced, patient. And I, my style is definitely yuck it up. I threaten to bungee cord people. Uh, <laughs> it makes people giggle a little. Yeah. And it takes their mind off of what they're worried about. Well, because it can be stressful. There's so much to learn, so much to remember. And it's funny because we, we talked about moving fast and moving slow, but moving slow is the tough stuff on the motorcycle. That's where the real skill is. Anybody can, probably anybody could get on, gas it, as long as they can pull away without stalling it and go fast, they could probably keep the bike upright going in a straight line fast, no problem at all. Absolutely. No disrespect to drag racers, but it's mm. definitely easier going fast in a straight line. But we need the slow speed skills to get there. Let's go back and, and just look at these and give some little tips on uh, ideas on how you can practice this. So number one being the eyes looking in the right place. What, what do you tell people as far as what would you tell them to practice on their own before they come to, to take a course? I'll definitely have them open, even if you're scared. Got to have the eyes open. Good plan, yep. And look up, even bicycling. Set up some tennis balls or some pop cans, anything every few meters, move off, try to stop with left foot down, right foot up at each one. Even bicycling skills like that will help you a few days before you go to your motorcycle course. The hardest thing for students is usually you're one of 10 individuals in a group of two instructors. I don't care who you are. We all judge how well we're doing by comparing our progress or lack of to the others in the group, which is totally unfair for yourself. Three of those 10 people rode to the course on their own motorcycle. So obviously they're gonna have more skill than you if you've never sat on one. Mm. A couple of others rode dirt bikes as kids. A couple of others in their 50s used to ride and then they had children and they got out of the sport. All of those people are going to pick it up faster and look far more superior. So I always warn people and coach them, uh, put the blinders on. Don't care what the other people are doing. You don't know who they are. They don't know who you are. So don't feel bad if you stall or even fall. Falling on a training course is a fantastic place to fall because you've got more gear on because they demand it then you'll probably ride on your own bike on a hot sunny day. You're not on your bike. That If you trash the one that you're riding, they go get you another one. They have spares. Yeah, but you're going to have to pay for that one, though. 
Well, it depends on the course. But uh, a lot of people freak out by comparing their skills with others. And it's, it's crazy. It's to the point where at our course, we specifically ask, where are you? What have you done? Uh, what's your experience level? So on paper, we have an idea that Joe used to ride when he was younger, and he just needs a little refresher and he's going to be fine. But we don't put Joe with Alice, who's never sat on a motorcycle, because she will be intimidated and he's bored. Yeah. That's not good customer service. No, that makes sense for sure. So number two, controls. That's pretty obvious. You want to sit there and you want to go over your controls and... I guess with with most of our listeners, they're already riders. So as far as control goes, I'm, I guess the one one of the big ones that really stuck out to me was getting used to using that kill switch. That's got to be a huge one. It is. Um, most people, if they don't have a, if they drive old cars like me, they have to reach across and adjust the volume or station if it's not in the center of the steering wheel. It's the same with a kill switch. You should be able to find that without looking at it. And practice shutting off your motorcycle using that. And then you'll do it when there's an emergency. So number three is moving off with the clutch, modulating the clutch. What do you tell people to practice to learn to modulate their clutch better? Oh, we have a great lesson for that. We have the person stand beside their motorcycle, fire it up, pull the clutch in, drop it into first gear, lean the motorcycle a little bit towards you and then let your clutch out just enough to take you for a walk not a jog or a run if you're jogging you let the clutch out too much and we teach for off-road two fingers on the clutch so you're modulating the clutch holding the reins of the horse back so that at idle or a little bit above idle with the throttle you can walk along at three kilometers an hour. The light bulb often goes on where people understand then that it's the clutch engagement that controls your speed when riding slowly. Mm. The throttle doesn't have as much to do with it. And that's really handy to learn for loading your bike up. If you're putting it into a trailer or anything, those are the skills that if you already have that down, uh, aside from riding, if you already have that down, you can maneuver your bike around. It's not a problem. Same as if you got stuck and had to get off, all those things. Yeah. At our school, you know, there might be 50 people there. There's 15 instructors. We're moving bikes around in and out. We're going to get a customer another bike. If you don't have a helmet on, you can't straddle that bike. So we have our instructors very comfortable with walking a motorcycle in gear using slow speed on the clutch. Because if you ride a bike without a helmet on, you're automatically fired. No excuses, no, you can't bribe me, nothing. Mm. Because we have a lot of kids here too sometimes and we want to model the proper safety behavior. Now, number four was feed up. Um, I'm assuming this is something you're just going to have to be cognizant of as you ride, each time you ride. Is that what you would explain to people? Exactly. And you, you can try it in a parking lot, but you're riding slowly at some part of every time you ride a motorcycle. Moving off, as soon as the clutch is, your bike is moving, get your feet up as soon as you can. It's best to raise them like airplane wheels at the same time. Leaving one foot down is 40, 50, 60 pounds, which is unbalancing. 
it's also dangerous to ride with your foot off the peg. So when moving off, get them up as soon as possible. Use that psychological bungee cord that is keeping your feet up. Then when coming into a stop, resist putting both of them down. No foot should come off the peg until the bike is about to fall over. And what we want it to do is to lean to the left. So a meter or two meters before stopping, lean your helmet to the left. That causes the left foot to come down, and that's what you balance with. That all makes sense. Well, there's some great basics. I know we didn't cover everything here, but we've got some basics here that, as, as you'd mentioned, that um, to me, that if you if you learn these ahead of time, they'll not only help if you if you're just riding yourself, but if you're going and taking a course, you learn these ahead of time. You're going to have so much. You're going to get so much more out of the course. Absolutely, changing established muscle memory is very hard. If you play hockey, baseball, any sport where one hand is dominant, for instance, you throw with your right, catch with your left, try switching gloves. It's almost impossible. Mm. I'm glad you Uh, said that because when it comes to muscle memory, because when we learn a skill, the next step is making it, as you said, muscle memory. How do you do that? uh, Repetitiveness. Um, People that actually go into factories and want to improve productivity, they say you have to move your right toe from the foot peg by lifting up, over, and down to engage the rear brake pedal. You have to do that about 20 times for all the muscle synapse, nerve to kick into a little bit of memory, but it's short-term memory. So three years hence, if you've never ridden before, it's going to be hard to find that first, that rear brake when someone asks you to. So prolonged exposure to repetitiveness in the dexterity of our hands and feet makes you a better rider. And that's why we're saying about this, these basic skills, because again, knowing where your kill switch is, is one thing, um, using it so that it becomes habit. So you don't even think about it when it comes to anything going wrong, your thumb hits it automatically. That's a different thing because that's your, your, I guess your subconscious really operating your body while your conscious tries to figure out what's going on. Exactly. Um, to the point where, you know, a hard ball comes at a shortstop in baseball. They're not thinking, okay, now I have to put my knee down. I've got to put my other hand behind my glove in case it bounces up over and get my body behind the ball. They just do it because they've done it thousands and thousands of time in practice. Otherwise, they never would have got to shortstop. Well, I guess now it's time for us to get out and practice. Clinton, great stuff. Thank you very much for coming on once again. My pleasure. Great chatting, Jim. As I'm sure you already know, that was Clinton Smout from Smart Adventures in Ontario, Canada. Clinton does uh, snowmobile, motorcycle, and ATV rider training at his site. And uh, you can find out more about what he does and the programs that he offers at www.smartadventures.ca. And of course, as always, that link will be in our show notes.
I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com. And Moto Breeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, you do us a great favor if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Of course, special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, who I know you hear very little about, but believe me, she's a big part of the show. And of course, thank you, you, for listening to the show. We really appreciate it. And if you like what we're doing here and you want to help out, we do have the show built on a model of advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work. I'd appreciate it if you drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com and click on the support button. We've got stickers for your panniers we can send back at you and a bunch of different ways to to show our appreciation for it. But um, we would love it if you consider doing that and, and we'd really appreciate it if you consider being a monthly supporter through our patron account. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike. My name is Jim Martin. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Hi, this is Elspeth Beard, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 